Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Comparison is a tricky thing. If I gave a dollar last week and then two this week, I can claim to have doubled my generosity. Impressive, right? Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts the new year with this sermon entitled Finding Perspective in the Presence of God, which covers Psalm 73. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you so much for uh, just the reality, the truth that you are so very faithful when we are faithless. Uh, Lord, when we are weary, you lift our heads up. When we are weak, you are strong. And so, uh, however we come to you this morning, Lord, would you meet us where we are? Would you speak to us, Father? We pray that your word would be what you say it is, that it would be sharper than any double-edged sword, that it would pierce our hearts, that you would speak in powerful ways to us and awaken us to the beauty of who you are, to the greatness of who you are. Lord, we, we open your word with great awe and wonder and ask that you would bless the reading and the teaching of your word unto your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna be in Psalm 73. This is, this is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. And uh, having this one Sunday to preach before we get into our new series next week, I just spent some time praying and thinking about what would be uh, just a one-week emphasis that would be perhaps even appropriate to launch into a new year out of. And the more I sat with that and thought and prayed about it, the more I felt like the Lord was saying, go back to Psalm 73. Now I say go back to Psalm 73 because um, I've gone there a lot in, in, in front of you guys as we get into the word together, but even in my own life, I go back to this Psalm all the time because I feel what Asaph, the writer of this Psalm feels, I feel it so often and I feel it so deeply. Um, this was the first sermon I ever preached at Perimeter Church. Before I was on staff here, uh, I had been invited to be a part of the summer, in the summer of 2014, be a part of the Young Leaders series that we've done many summers. And uh, this was what I preached the very first time I was ever uh, standing here at Perimeter Church. And so I found it appropriate to come back to that. And so uh, as we think about Psalm 73, I, I wanted to lead into it with this question. What are you doing with the emotions that you're bringing into 2022? What are you doing with the emotions that you're bringing into 2022? And we, and we in any time of, in the history of mankind, we always bring emotions with us into, into new spaces and places and times. But perhaps, at least for us in our lifetime, perhaps more than ever, we're bringing some deep felt emotion into this new year. You know, when this whole COVID thing started in March of 2020, there were, uh, I can remember vividly that when we first uh, began to hear about it and all the various ramifications and we went to online services, I can remember having conversations for, okay, I think this is only gonna be three or four weeks and then we can be back up and running again and, in, in no time. And I think many of us thought that very naively, perhaps. 
And so just even bringing in the emotion that we're in another new year and it's still here, still dealing with it. But even if we weren't, even if COVID's not in the picture, just, just life in a fallen, broken, sinful world wears on us. And in so many ways, we look back on a year as we do, and we say, wow, there were many things to celebrate and be thankful for, but there were so many hard things for some of us. Some of us lost some very dear loved ones, family members, friends. Some of us received very hard health diagnoses. Some of us lost jobs and haven't been able to find employment. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. And those are just the ways in which uh, we struggle in this life and we carry these emotions with us into these, this new year. So the question becomes, what are we doing with those emotions? Tim Keller has a great perspective on this. He, I remember reading one time where he had said, you know, there's really three ways that we can deal with our emotions as people and then specifically as Christians. He said, you know, there's the irreligious approach. That's his words. He calls it the irreligious approach, which would be to vent our emotions in an unhealthy way, not caring about the ramifications of, of the ways in which we express our, our emotions. So he's saying in a, in a very non-religious way, we can be in this posture that says, look, I'm gonna say what I'm gonna say and I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do, motivated out of this emotion that I feel, and I don't care who it hurts. I don't care the ramifications of what may come from it. He says there's another way to deal with it that is uh, the religious way, as it were, which is to say that traditionally speaking in religious circles, particularly within churches throughout uh, the years, it's, uh, it's been more favorable to suppress your emotions, to not be too down and to not be too elated, to not, here's the key, to not show vulnerability and weakness. And so what we end up doing, perhaps in a religious posture, is we suppress our emotions. But he then says this, he says, but when you read the Psalms, the Psalms very clearly teach us to pray our emotions, to bring what we're feeling, to bring all the depths of what we're feeling and just lay it out bare before the Lord. You know, when you read through the Psalms, there's oftentimes where you'll be reading through it and there'll even be, at least for me, there's, this, there's many times where I'll go, is it okay to say that to God? It, I mean, the psalmist there is just really kind of just unleashing on the Lord. Why, why have you been so silent, oh God? Why have you left me? My enemies surround me. Where are you, God? Those kind of questions. But then even deeper than that, the accusations sometimes that they feel towards God. And the psalmists are teaching us. And so many of the psalms are David's, but the one we're looking at this morning is actually not. It's from this guy named Asaph. But they're teaching us to say, look, God's cool with that. Not only is he cool with it, he wants you to bring your emotions to him. He knows your emotions. It's not like you're hiding them from him. But there's this, uh, this wonderful work that is done in the heart of his people when we bring to him the depths of what we're feeling and we're honest with him. It's a good thing and it's a godly thing. And so what are you doing with your emotions that you're bringing in to 2020? And are you perhaps one of the two of venting unhealthily or suppressing in an unhealthy way? rather than praying your emotions to God.
Emotions are not a bad thing, by the way. As I talk through this this morning, I don't want you to be tempted to think that I'm saying that emotions uh, should be ignored. They're good. Emotions are, God made us this way, right? Emotions, oftentimes, what we feel can be like, a, uh, like the dashboard of our hearts to where we can see what's going on in the depths of our heart. There's a bit of a warning sign where the needle's getting into the red of the odometer, perhaps. And, and we would be able to look at that and say, okay, I, I, need, to, I need to take this before the Lord. I need to not suppress this or, or vent it in an unhealthy way. But I wanna pray these emotions, bring them to the Lord to where he can make them what they need to be. So Psalm 73, let's read it. I'm gonna stop along the way giving commentary and I'm gonna give you three points to remember that come out of this Psalm. Psalm 73, verse one. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now I'm gonna pause right there and just, I want you to make sure you're seeing what's already happening. Where Asaph started and where he quickly went. Okay, where he started in verse one is he's stating what's true, what he knows to be true. He's saying in verse one, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, I know this is true, but let me tell you what I feel and where I've been. Surely my feet had almost slipped and here's why. Did you catch it in verse three? Here's the crux of what his emotional position is right now. For I, or what it was until later in the psalm, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, there is a horizontal fixation going on with Asaph. He he is looking all around him. He's observing those who live around him. And he's, he's starting to draw some conclusions that are becoming for him his new truth, not based, based out of what God says, but based out of what he says. He's establishing new truth that isn't truth. But to him it is because his mind is becoming so fogged and so clouded by his emotions and by his perception. And so he says, I'm looking around and I, and I see that the wicked prosper. And it ticks me off, God. It makes me angry, it makes me envious, it makes me jealous. I want what they have and I don't understand why they have it. Listen to, as he continues in verse four. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That was a way in the ancient times, if you were heavier, Physically, that was actually something that was desired because that meant you were rich, meant that you had access to all the food that you wanted. So he says, look, they're, in other words, he says, they're fat and happy. And I don't like it because I want to be fat and happy. He says, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. He's looking at these people and he's he's making judgment upon them to say, God, these aren't good people. These are wicked people and yet they prosper. What's up with that? 
And did you catch the falsities, the things that he's stating is true, but they're not true. But because he's so clouded by what he feels and by his perspective, they're true to him. He said things like this. He says, uh, uh, they have no pangs until death. Well, that's not true. May appear to him as though they don't have pangs until death. They're, they're human. Of course they have pangs until death. He says, they have no trouble as others do. Okay, yeah, that's not true. Then he says this, and this is a theological unbelief or misbelief. He says, uh, they are not stricken like the, le- the rest of mankind. Well, Asaph is a godly man. He knows Genesis 3. He knows that the fall of mankind through Adam and Eve was uh, a a sinful nature was then put on every man, meaning there is no one, no man, no woman that's ever existed other than Christ himself who hasn't been stricken by sin. But he's believing a lie because his emotions have has fogged his perspective and his reasoning. And his feelings, albeit good, feelings, not a bad thing, but they're clouding, they're bringing into wrong perspective, landing in wrong truth, as it were. And he's bitter. He's bitter, he's envious, he's angry, he's jealous. And then verse nine, he says, and they're doing it to you, God. It's not just what they have, it's who they are. They don't respect you, God. They don't don't bow before you. They even mock you. Listen to what he says. He says, verse eight, verse nine, sorry. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked Always at ease, they increase in riches. Now watch what happens in verse 13. As he's, as he's airing out his dirty laundry here and as he's just letting it all come out, he says this. He says, you know what, God? I'm so frustrated by this that I think I've even worshiped you in vain. All this, everything that I've been doing for you, the ways in which I have kept myself clean. Yeah, you know, I'm done, all in vain. Verse 13, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. The fat and happy, the wicked, the godless, they're not stricken, but I am God. What's up with that? And then he says, verse 15, he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he's he's saying, look, I didn't say anything. I'm just talking to you about this. God, I'm just talking to you. I didn't say anything. I knew if I had just let all this out, I would have betrayed the generation that I'm supposed to be giving leadership to. But God, I'm struggling. And this is hard and I don't understand you. The first truth I want you to remember this morning out of this text, out of these first 15 verses is this, is that horizontal comparison can lead to debilitating emotions. Horizontal comparison can lead to debilitating emotions. Asaph is lost in the land of comparison. He's totally lost in the land of comparison. He is so fixated horizontally, comparing himself to others that he has lost all ability in that moment to perceive and understand truth. 
truth about who God is, truth about who he is himself, truth about who others are, and truth about his circumstances in the world around him. He's just lost the perspective. He's totally lost it because he's lost in the land of comparison. Now listen, when we compare, when we allow ourselves to be given to comparison and we, and we allow it to take root in us such that we begin to draw false conclusions because of what we perceive from the comparisons that we make, we, we always land in one of two places. We either land either in the place of self-righteousness, which is to say, uh, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like others. Thank you. Or we land in the place of despair, which is to say, God, why can't I be like others? How dare you? Don't miss that. When we live in that land of comparison, when we're fixated horizontally, we begin to draw wrong conclusions that we think are true and we land in either self-righteousness or despair. God, I'm glad I'm not like them, self-righteousness. God, why can't I be like them, despair? And it leads us into these cycles as a result of jealousy, of envy, of anger, all the things that we all know and feel deeply. There's certain things that exist in our world today. This is obviously nothing new under the sun. Asaph is writing this probably somewhere around 1000 BC. So this whole comparison thing as a result of who we are as humans has been around forever since Genesis 3. But there are certain things that exist in our world today that invite us in perhaps a little bit more than previous generations to the, uh, the allure of the temptation of comparison that is, is so seductive. And I know that I've talked about this a lot. And those of you who've been around for a while go, is he gonna go here again? I'm like, yeah, I am, sorry. But social media just breeds it. It feeds it like a monster and we allow it to feed us. We continue to go back to the land of comparison through our screens and we live here. And we go to these apps and we live there. And we find ourselves looking continually to these apps and we're giving the devil a foothold, a stronghold. He's bear hugging some of us. He's got us so deeply. And what we do the entire time we're looking at it is we think, why am I not like that? Why can't I look like that? How come my spouse doesn't do that or does do that like this spouse does or doesn't do? How come my kids won't be like this mom who looks perfect on Instagram's kids? Why come, how come my hair won't curl like that? How come I don't have cool clothes like that? How come I'm not as athletic as him? Why can't I be as pithy and witty and funny as him? If I could just be funny, I would have the world because people like to laugh. And he can make them laugh, God. Why can't I make them laugh? And so what's supposed to be something that we do to display ourselves to the world becomes a trap that murders us, that kills us that gives us false perspective and false truths, as it were, and we believe them. We believe them just like Asaph. We say they have no pangs until death. God says, not true. He says, yeah, they're, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. He says, not true. He says, they're fat and happy with no worries in the world. Not true. 
But as long as we're lost in the land of comparison, we think that's true. Guys, listen, just so you know, I did, this is not just to have a little illustration. This happened to me this morning. I've known for two weeks what I'm gonna preach. I've been thinking about it pretty regularly ever since Christmas Eve services. I've known I, I am gonna stand on this stage and share this with you in this morning. This morning, I'm driving in to the church and I find myself daydreaming and this is where I went. I started thinking about other pastors that I know well in the Atlanta area and I started thinking, I bet they are such better pastors than me. They will preach better sermons this morning than me. They lead their people better than I do. I bet they have a clear vision for where they're leading their church than I do and I'm totally on the way to preach this sermon lost in the land of comparison and I'm dying driving south on PIB and I'm at the red light at the intersection of Peachtree Industrial Boulevard and Abbott's Bridge Road and I'm standing and it's like I'm so lost and it's like the Lord went wake up and I woke up and I was like oh my goodness I'm doing it I'm doing it and I just started laughing because it's so subtle and we go there so quickly so here's a question. Here's a question. How have you allowed the hope-destroying, joy-stealing trap of comparison hold you lately? How have you allowed yourself to be given to horizontal fixation, to comparison? Because we know what it does to our hearts yet we keep going there. We keep eating it over and over and over again, and it never satisfies our hunger, ever. So what do we do? Well, thankfully, Asaph doesn't end the psalm there. Look what he says. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. In other words, the more I try to figure this out of why God does what he does and why he gives this to some and not to others and why he gives this to me and not other things to me and so on and so forth, it just wears me out. I can't figure it out. Until, look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then, oh, the fog went away. Right perspective came into view. I began to see God rightly. I began to see myself rightly. I began to see others rightly. And I began to see my circumstances and the world around me rightly. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. In other words, I remembered Asaph saying, oh yeah, I got into the presence of God and the fog went away and I remembered, oh yeah, they're wicked and prospering now according to my perspective and the world's standards. But unless they repent and unless they see that they are sinners in need of a savior, they will perish. And that's not a judgmental condemning statement from Asaph or from me, it's just simply the truth according to God's word. And so I may be envious of them now, but this is a blip on the radar in terms of all of eternity. 
And I'll guarantee you that when I'm standing in the presence of God because of his redeeming work for me and to me and Jesus, I will not be envious of them then, but I certainly hope they repent. I certainly long for them to see the error of their ways and see that being fat and happy is really nothing in the eyes of eternity. He says, I I went into the presence of God. Clarity, I see now. It's the second point I want you to see. It's horizontal orientation. Getting into the presence of God leads us to proper perspective. Leads us to discerning what is actually true. We begin to see it with fresh eyes. We begin to see him with fresh eyes. Look what Asaph says. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now listen to what he says in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's saying, when I was in that place of horizontal fixation rather than vertical orientation, when I was in that place, I was just so ignorant. I was so foolish. Like Caleb preached last week, I was living in foolishness. And when I was in that place of embitteredness towards you, God, I was like a beast towards you. I was so offensive to you, God. When I was in that, those places. Now, listen, this is good that Asaph is doing this. He's just being raw with the Lord. God knows it already. He knows. But he's saying, come on, tell me. Let it out. Yes. Yes. Yes, that's right. You were ignorant and brutish. That's right. But I'm still here. I'm still with you. And that's where he goes next. Look what Asaph says. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You hold my right hand. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying, um, I was brutish towards you. I was so incredibly faithless, but you remain faithful. And I am always with you, not because of anything that I am doing or have done, but entirely, God, because of you. Because in every way in which I put my hands in my pocket and say, I'm not holding your hand because I don't understand why you give some some things to some people and other things to other people and not to me. You're not holding my hand and God just very gently, very graciously reaches even into our pocket and pulls out our hand and he says, but I'm still here. And I'm gonna lead you and I'm gonna guide you and I'm gonna pull you back into my presence so that you can see clearly again. God is so incredibly gracious to his people. When I was, um, when I was a freshman in college, joined a fraternity. And I think everyone knows fraternities do a lot of stupid things. One of the things that my fraternity did is that when you were pledging, when you were pledging to be a part of the fraternity, it was about a six month process. While you were a freshman pledge, you, when you were in the house, the fraternity house, you had to walk with your head down. 
You had to stare at your feet as you walked through the house. I told you, very stupid, right? And if you ever looked up, if a brother, initiated brother, caught you looking up and, and not looking down, you'd get in trouble. And so for six months, I just, anytime I was in the house, I'm looking down at my feet. I was thinking about that recently and I thought, man, what a metaphor for how we tend to live life. Here's something more to it though, is that it kind of, I did it for so long, for six months, that's how I walked in that house, that I can remember for years after, I can remember being junior, senior on campus and I'm walking across campus and I'm walking like this. Not because I have to, but because I've trained myself for so long to be fixated on what's right beneath me. That trained me to do that, to where I'm walking across this beautiful campus and I'm not even noticing it. I'm not even seeing it because I'm fixated on just what's right here. And what a metaphor for how I tend to live life, how we tend to live life to where we're so fixated on the horizontal, what's right here, the circumstances that I can see right here, that we walk through life, we walk through 2020, we walk through 2021, we're bringing into 2022 this posture. And what God does when we get into his presence is he slowly, graciously, mercifully, lovingly brings us into his presence and he says, okay, look, here's what I need you to do. I'm gonna lift your head up and I want you to see me with fresh eyes. And I want you to fixate on me, not your circumstances. I want you to see who I am. I want you to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I want you to be enamored, not with that, but with him. And the more that we fixate on him, the more that comes into view in such a way to where when we do glance down, we take it for what it is. We say, okay. I can handle this because I know who you are. Because I, I want to continually be finding proper perspective in the presence of God. And what is the presence of God? How do we get into the presence of God? What does that even look like? Well, it's in some ways, it's, it's actually pretty simple. God's made it very clear in scripture. There's three ways that we continually posture ourselves in the presence of God to where the fog clears and we see clearly. The first is his word. We read it, we study it, we apply it to our lives. We do that individually in our own, what you might call a quiet time or time with the Lord, whatever. We do that ourselves. We do that in small groups where we help others do that with us. We pray again individually. We spend time praying, seeking the Lord individually in prayer and also again, small groups with others. We learn to pray the more we pray and the more we hear others pray. And then the big one, those two are huge, but the, the one that we often ignore and the one that scripture emphasizes the most is corporate worship, the, the corporate gathering of God's people where he says, come join in my presence with my people. And when we are together with God's people in his presence, he does profound work in us. Most of the time in ways that we don't even know is happening in the moment. But he's doing a work. He's doing a work through the songs that we sing. This is why Paul said, when you're together, sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. He said that one, yes, to sing those to God. But he said, when you're gathered together, this is the implication, you're hearing truth sung over each other. That's a beautiful thing and it's helping you believe. We, we're enriched by the sacraments that we participate in together. 
the fellowship that we have together, the encouragement that we have together, the accountability that we have together, the ways in which the gathered body nourishes our souls is profound. Asaph was talking about the temple. He didn't have right perspective until he went into the sanctuary of God. Well, for him, Old Testament Israel, that's the temple. It's not just him opening the scriptures in his home. It's not just him praying in his home. It's him going to the temple with God's people and seeking the presence of God. Proper perspective in the presence of God. But I want you to see one more thing in this text. As we get to the end of the Psalm, you're noticing the, the transition that's happening with Asaph. He's becoming less concerned about what others have or don't have. And he's becoming more concerned with what he already has, namely God himself. It sounds really Christian-y and trite to say this, but it is absolutely true. And if you walk with Jesus for any amount of time, you know it to be true. Even in your deepest parts of unbelief, you know deep down that this is true, which is to say this, that, that he really is sufficient. He really is enough. He really does satisfy the depths of who I am and all my longings. And it may not always feel like that, but he does. That's who he is. Asaph comes to this conclusion. Verse 24, he says, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. He's beginning to get eternally fixated, not horizontally fixated. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you, they, they shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me. For me, it is good to be near to God. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Third thing I want you to see is this, eternal fixation reorients the priority of God as our portion. The more you see Asaph becoming eternally fixated rather than horizontally fixated, the, the more you see him letting go of things that don't matter. I read recently a, a, a pastor who's been in the, uh, the, the position much, much longer than I have. And he just simply said this, he said, you know, I try to live by the 70 rule. And as I first read, I was like, what is he talking about? And as he continued, he just, the way he described it is this. He said, I try not to get so overwhelmed by things in the moment by asking, well, I care about this when I'm 70. Will this matter to me when I'm 70? And he says, 98% of the time, the answer is no. No, I'm not gonna care. I'm not gonna care about that when I'm 70, when I'm 80, if God grants me life that long. But if we live like this, we're gonna convince ourselves that that really matters so much that I'm gonna care about it when I'm 70. Even bigger than that though, am I gonna care about that in eternity?
The more Asaph gets eternally fixated, the more he becomes enthralled with who God is. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. Really, Asaph? Let's skip back 10 verses. That's not what you were saying. But that's where he is now. As he went into the presence of God, God gave him proper perspective. And he says, look, when I see you for who you are, God, there's nothing that I desire besides you. And then he even goes so far as to say this, my flesh and my, and my heart may fail. But you, O oh God, you are the strength of my heart and you are my portion forever. Life is made up of all kinds of portions. Where are we gonna take? Where are we gonna sit? Where are we gonna eat? Where are we gonna dine? Where are we gonna gorge ourselves? When are we gonna fill ourselves? With what, with who are we gonna fill ourselves? What are the things that are the portions in our lives that we think are the highest priorities? And those will shape our perspectives and determine what we believe is true or not true. And many of those portions are good things, but misappropriately placed become things that don't give us what God only can give us. So it may be your kids. You become so enamored with your kids that if something happens in their life that brings about a sense of crumbling in their life, as it were, you crumble with them because your identity is so tied to them. Your job, whether you're successful or not successful, your identity is so wrapped up in that. Who you are is so wrapped up in that that if it crumbles, you crumble. Your relationship status, whether you're single or not single, whether you're married or not married, whether you are in a healthy relationship or not in a healthy relationship, if it crumbles, you crumble because it's your portion. And so we can begin to read Psalm 73. If we wanna be really honest with our emotions, we can begin to read Psalm 73 verse 26 by just saying, God, here's the truth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but my kids are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the truth, God. That's how I live. Now, I love them with all my heart, but I am so enraptured in their success that if they're not successful, then I crumble, and that's not okay, God. And I just wanna say that to you. Can we position ourselves in, the, in a posture of, of perspective in the presence of God such that we can say with Asaph and it will come and go and we'll probably have to go back there every single day because we're so quick to run away from this truth. But we can say in the moment and in the next moment and in the next moment and in the next moment, my heart and my flesh may fail. You can do whatever you want to me, God, because you're sovereign and you're good and you love me more than I could ever imagine. And you may take it all away, but I am okay because you... You, oh God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And my watch is talking to me. Technology is so stupid. All right. That was my emotion right there coming out that my watch would talk. But you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And that we can say that. That we can say that. Who or what are your portions that take away from the priority of God as your portion. And here's the best part. God gives us so much clarity in the New Testament that Asaph didn't have. Asaph didn't know Jesus. He knew there was one coming, but he didn't know who he was. 
Asaph didn't have the view of heaven that we do. He thought that he understood appropriately so, because this was true, that if you die before Christ came, you go into this place called Hades, where there's holding chambers called the bosom, uh, uh, the, the, uh, Abraham's bosom, where the righteous went. And then the, the other part that was the holding part with the unrighteous went. They didn't go into the presence of God until Christ came and made redemption for all sin, for those who believe. What we know now through the lens of the New Testament is if we believe upon Jesus, we really truly can say, whom have I in heaven but you? Because as Paul teaches us, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I die, I am immediately in the presence of the Lord. Asaph couldn't say that. We know through the teaching of Jesus where he says in John 6, 35, he uses satisfaction language like Asaph was using. And he says this, look, I'm the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never be hungry again. So come, come, take, eat. He says, I'm the fountain of living waters. If you drink of me, you'll never be thirsty again. So who is the portion? It's not just that we would say that you are my portion forever, but we can specifically say, Jesus, he is my portion. He's the one that loved me so much that he came to give his life as a ransom for me. He's the one that went to the cross for me. He's the portion that rose from the dead for me such that I can dine on him by faith and live with him for eternity. Jesus. You are my portion. So Father, we come to you this morning and we just simply wanna say and declare to you that we are a people who get our portions all out of whack. We believe and allow ourselves to be in a fog such that we're so fixated horizontally that we, we fail to see you clearly. We fail to see others clearly. We fail to see ourselves clearly and even more, we really struggle to see our circumstances and the world around us clearly. And so would you be just so gracious as you are to lead us into your presence time and time again to give us proper perspective that we may see you, Jesus, as the portion that you are that satisfies us all of our longings Unto your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.